Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, and we've got an action-packed episode coming up this week. The political temperature has been rising in many places around the world, whether you look to the United Nations General Assembly and Donald Trump's threat to essentially totally destroy North Korea and its 25 million citizens, to the questions that Aung San Suu Kyi has been facing in Myanmar over ethnic cleansing, to Catalonia, Spain, where campaigners for independence have faced raids from the national government in Madrid, and there's been a ding-dong battle as Spain has really fought back to explain why Spain is better off united, why this referendum is illegal. So we're going to dive into all of that with the countdown to the German elections. We'll hear from Florian Eder, who is our German expert here at Politico. And our featured interview this week is with Tony Cohen-Brown, who is from Nation Builder, a software company that's really at the cutting edge these days of how political campaigns are run. The reason why there's a lack of leadership in the world in all aspects of society, and the reason for that is because until recently they can actually get their hands on the funding and the tools and the technology and the software that they needed to do that. So we want to put the software in the hands of the many and not just the few. And then once you get that, you get more people being able to be part of that. In our EU WTF moment, we tackle two issues. We tackle Boris Johnson and his quite extraordinary essay that he published recently. And then we also look at the European Court of Human Rights and why 10,000 judgments from that court have not been enforced. And in our Dear Politico section, we ask, do you have to be based in Brussels if you're trying to represent pan-EU interests? All that and more in this week's episode of EU Confidential. We're welcoming Florian Ada, who is one of Politico's managing editors and also the author of the Morgan Europa newsletter that we put out in German language each weekday morning. Florian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, listeners probably won't be surprised that I've got some questions about the German election for you because oh, wow. we're in countdown mode. You might even be listening to this right as the votes are being tallied for the 2017 German election. Florian, could you get us started by saying um, what seems clear to you right now and what is still to be decided in these last few days? What is pretty clear is that the CDU and CSU, so Angela Merkel's party and her sister party in Bavaria, are going to be the biggest party that's what every single poll suggests and has suggested for the past months or weeks even. So that is pretty clear. What is not clear yet is which coalition is going to govern in Germany from after the elections next Sunday. 
and there's no chance she'll get an outright majority of seats. That's at least not what, what the polls suggest now. The CDU polls around 35, 36-ish percent. That means that the CDU will be the larger partner in, in any possible coalition, uh, but we're far from, a, from an absolute majority here. And one of the headlines I saw yesterday that would have alarmed quite a few readers is the idea that the alternative for Deutschland, the far-right party, they're in a position to potentially become the official opposition if Merkel were to continue the current Grand Coalition government. Is that hype or is that something that people are taking seriously in Germany and actually has some meaning if it was to occur? It would have some meaning. At the moment, there are a few smaller parties, uh, around 10, you know, from 8 to 12 percent uh, each. The Alternative for Deutschland, the AfD, is one of them and is one of them uh, that might be the, the biggest opposition party if there was uh, a continuation of the Grand Coalition indeed. The concept of official opposition is not something that you would have in, in Germany, but of course the biggest opposition party gets, you know, to speak first in response to the government and all and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that is something that has a meaning and it is something that people, uh, some people are scared of, other people are of course not those who vote for the AfD. And does it have resources attached to it as well? Is it something that can be leveraged um, beyond the symbols or the actual power that comes with it? Well, it would be the first time that the AfD enters in the in the Bundestag, on in, in the parliament on, on federal level. And of course, that comes with resources, with uh, personnel, with staff, with money. Uh, that would give the party a lot of, you know, uh, institutional, institutional power and also uh, background in terms of resources. And if we think back to the Brussels perspective for a little bit, um, if you're Jean-Claude Juncker or you're Donald Tusk, who do you want to win the election? I mean, they've never, you know, they're professional politicians, they wouldn't probably say, but if you look at what they say and how they behave and how uh, their relationships are with, uh, with, with, with candidates in Germany, uh, the most likely, the outcome that they would probably like most is a grand coalition again, I would say. Um, they've known Angela Merkel for the past 12 years as chancellor. Uh, in 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 their uh, different positions, uh, they know Martin Schulz, who might become might play an important role if there if there was. He, a he was kind of the again. third musketeer, along with uh, well, Laurent, yeah. before he came back to Germany. So I guess in terms of what you want is predictability, stability, uh, and and in a in a from a European perspective, uh, a grand coalition would probably be exactly what uh, is the the most the outcome that they would like most. Speaking of Schultz, one possibility for him if he was to enter the government after the election is he could angle to try and become the finance minister, for example. That's been a dividing point to some extent between the parties. Uh, Germany's had a quite controversial role in how uh, bailouts and other development of uh, the Eurozone has been handled. Um, What do you think would be the reception, both at home and in Brussels, to the idea of a social democrat in the finance role? Schulz has, has started his campaign with a big bump, as you said. Indeed, obviously, he didn't really get a grasp on, on the mood in the country, uh, on what people would want to hear, on what people uh, find exciting about, about politics. It looks as if Wolfgang Schäuble, the, the incumbent finance minister, who's been in the role since 2009, actually, was not really ready to move unless Angela Merkel told him so. Uh, and even then, I would guess it would be a hard fight between the two. And speaking of power balances, Merkel obviously will have a big challenge ahead of her. She might be coasting to victory, but she is permanently juggling the 16 lander, coalition members, potential threats within her own party, people being tired of the fact of someone being around for 12 years. Do you think she can actually make it to the end of the fourth term, or is she likely to hit some other obstacle that 
gets her out of the way before then. I mean, she she's used to everything that you describe, uh, and because she has been doing so for the past 12 years, fighting competitors internally as well as externally. Now, coming up next in the podcast, we have an interview with uh, Tony Cohen-Brown, who is a senior figure within Nation Builder, which is one of the larger software companies that is now the backbone to a lot of different election campaigns. And one of the things she's going to talk about is the fact that they've struggled to get work in Germany, that German political parties don't want to trust an outside company with the sort of information or tasks that Nation Builder provides. And I think that ties back specifically to data protection sensibilities in Germany. Can you give us any insight into why Germans are so parochial and also sensitive when it comes to those data issues? Well, there is a, a sensitivity indeed in data issues. They don't want their data to be stored outside the country, probably, because it could easily be turned against them. Look at those. They bought our data to influencers. Uh, that is something that you don't want to hear in a campaign. That makes me wonder if Germany's ripe for disruption. Maybe not now, but at some point when someone figures out a way to unlock that sensibility and they rush into the, the gates and sweep up the, the, the knowledge of German voters that's kind of out there untested at the moment. That's an interesting point. And as Peter Altmaier, the chief of staff in the, in the Chancery, said, uh, the, the big task for the next government is to organize something that you don't understand, that is digitization. Yeah, that's difficult because Germany actually maybe a final uh, thought or question is around Germany's demographics, where Germany looks very solid economically and has obviously sort of shown a lot of discipline so that it can be ready for things like an aging population. But it, it really has a bit of a demographic cliff edge coming up in the next few years, doesn't it? It does, totally. And that is something that almost every party failed to address, actually. Well, that gives us plenty to discuss after the election. I'm sure we'll spend a few weeks sorting out a coalition. Florian Ada, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Hey, listeners, I'm joined by Tony Cohen-Brown from Nation Builder. Hi, Tony. Hi, Ryan. It's great to have you. I'm going to make you explain to me a little bit about where we are, because I kind of walked in and it was like part Jetsons, part some kind of <laughs> crazy Silicon Valley startup, and now we're in some weird space where we kicked out a bunch of people you've never met before. <laughs> They're somehow like co-tenants in this space with you. Where the hell are we? That sounds about right. Um, so we're in a WeWork, which is um, called the co-working space. So it's very useful for, I guess, small startups and companies who don't want to go through the hassle. I'm doing some good advertising now for WeWork. But <laughs> um, they're basically companies who don't want to go through the hassle of having to find a space in London, pay for the rent, sign a two-year, three-year lease. This is what's interesting of the WeWork business model is they don't actually own the buildings. They rent it out for all right. of And then we, we're subletters, ultimately. Okay. And there's all of these little office spaces. Um, this is just four walls or three so walls like and a glass. This is like a high-class Craigslist, basically. It's all a very young um, Regis space. Right. Okay. So it's the same model as Regis without the white men in suits and ties, if I dare say exactly. it. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> that's not what Tony's here to talk to us about. She is at the cutting edge of 21st century political campaigning. And we've all seen a lot of changes in political campaigns in the last couple of years. Unbelievable rises of outsiders. Everything's going digital. The rise of fake news. It's all very confusing but exciting at the same time. So, Tony, what is it that you 
do? You're basically a software backbone for all sorts of political campaigns, is that right? That is correct, yes. So actually I spent many years in politics and international relations and digital communications and I think more or less three years ago I joined a tech company and that tech company is Nation Builder. And although it's a bit weird for someone, I guess, with my background to join a pure tech company, it actually makes sense when you get to understanding the type of customers um, that we work for. So we very much provide the software and the infrastructure for people running campaigns. Um, And in our mind... People. Now we're talking like Emmanuel Macron and Bernie Sanders. Exactly. So not just that. So it's also actually, it's interesting because we don't just provide the software to the actual candidates, but we also provide it to the actual political parties and creating political party infrastructure. We also work with nonprofits. We also work with brands and corporates, which is becoming interesting because we're working more and more with corporates and brands who want to actually use, bizarrely, some of the tactics from one of the most archaic businesses out there, politics, use the Mm -hmm. same tactics to sort of engage more with their consumers and their users, which is quite interesting. And is that all about emotions and the way that a leader is trying to appeal to people's really base needs and desires and they're trying to connect that in a commercial sense as well? Yes, um, so it's great. We Actually, we had, we've been working with All Saints, which is a high street fashion brand, and it was great the first conversation I had with their CEO, uh, William King, who said, well, if it works to get a president elected, surely it should help. It should work to get me to sell more clothes. So it's starting to understand who you're trying to appeal to, who they are and what they want to hear from you, and then create that ongoing relationship with them. So it very much is about the relationship. And I guess when I learned that you had done this work with both Macron and Sanders, You know, it struck me that it was proof of the barriers to entry really coming down in a lot of political races, that you can kind of like plug and play a political campaign if you're connected to the right people from the get-go. And that is how they build these movements so quickly. And I think you might have also done something with Theresa May. What was that experience? We did. Um, So we actually did, I think we worked with all of the candidates for the Conservative leadership race. And it was a fascinating switch that we saw with Theresa May's team because they ultimately rang us up and said, right, David Cameron's stepping down. We need something that works and we need it tomorrow. And it's that interesting shift that we saw from building beautiful websites and digital campaigning hubs that had the right logos and the right branding to actually, we just need something out of the box that's going to work and that's going to work tomorrow. And that was the first shift that I saw happen so rapidly with a campaign where they really understood and realized it's not about the branding and the website it's about getting something off the shelf that really truly works and does the job and do you think that is I mean that was that driven by the top because like when I think of Theresa May I think of a lot of things but she doesn't seem to be like the most nimble wow I'm just gonna slam dunk it on the campaign yeah. trail like because she was really awkward yeah. in some of the actual physical appearances on the campaign trail it's interesting because I actually think she had the right people inside her campaign and, that were and thinking that's good about judgment in a sense Theresa May or whoever because part of being a leader is you can't do it all yourself exactly. so you have to be able to build teams yeah. you have to be able to draw good people to you yeah. and see how they'll work together you know in totally. strange constellations yeah and yeah. it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things that god I I think I talked on a daily basis with especially our political um, customers but we use the snowflake model so the snowflake model was made very popular during Obama's 2008 2012 campaign and it's this whole idea of decentralizing everything that you're doing so get in a room, 10 people, give them the tools, the content, brief them on what they should know, and then put them out in the world. And each of these 10 individuals then goes and trains or educates 10 other people. And it's this idea that you can 
if you're decentralizing the workforce that you're doing and you're losing a little bit of control, but you're able to grow that user base at scale. And are we seeing that across the board in Europe? Because I know that the EU tries to create a level playing field wherever it can yeah. in digital things or for even we just saw in this state of the union you're yeah. trying to reform how political parties are yeah. funded how the campaigns will operate in the 2019 european election but do you come up against other problems you know either culturally yeah. people saying i need a bespoke solution yeah. for me or data privacy laws that yeah. where you're just like not allowed to operate or people are scared from using yeah. your systems there's so many um so many things i think the first aspect of that is you were right when you said earlier on that we've lowered the barrier to entry. And that was one of the things that was the most important for us is the reason why there is a lack of leadership in the world today. And there's a great survey that the World Economic Forum ran on this that said, I think it's 86% of respondents said there was a lack of leadership in the world in all aspects of society, which is absolutely fascinating and also very true. And the reason for that is because until recently, they couldn't actually get their hands on the funding and the tools and the technology and the software that they needed to do that. So that was our first big exercise is we want to put the software in the hands of the many and not just the few. And then once you get that, you get more people being able to be part of that. The second aspect that we saw is, yes, it's across the board that we're seeing this. We obviously started seeing this earlier on in the UK. The UK is always going to be closer to the US than it is to mainland Europe, probably even more so now. So we started seeing that there as well. But what's been interesting is nearly every single political party that we talk to has that exact same reaction is oh, we can't do off the shelf. We're going to have to build something in-house. We're going to have to do something that's truly bespoke to our needs. Because they're afraid that you'll misuse the data or... It's, no, I, I think we get to that. Um, but I think in the first instance is everyone thinks that they're unique. Everyone thinks that they're a, a unique snowflake that has its own unique needs. And the reality is, at the end of the day, if you're running a political party, there's only a couple of things that you should be focused on. Getting your volunteers, getting word of mouth out there and creating more awareness, getting donations and door knocking. Those are really the only things that you should be focused on. Now, this is interesting because way back in the day, I worked as a private secretary, that character out of uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, <laughs> for the government chief information officer. We're talking 2004, 2005 yeah. here. It was all about trying to get uh, government departments to share back-end services because they didn't need to yeah. go and negotiate separately with IBM yeah. or whoever. Just getting people to understand that it didn't have to all be original, that yeah. it didn't have to all come from them, yeah. that you could do it in these new flexible yeah. ways. It was a big culture shock. I don't I don't think we... We're not quite there yeah. yet. No, <laughs> we're not quite there. And what's fascinating is why would they want to do it? Why does a political party want to spend its time and its money building tech when it's not equipped to do it, it doesn't have the right people, and it's really not what they should be focused on? So I'd say we're slowly starting to see, to see that shift. Once we get over that hurdle, and sometimes it takes years, and they come back to us and said, right, we've just spent a fortune on something that actually doesn't work. And we lost. And we, yeah, and we lost, <laughs> and it was archaic, and all of that. Okay, we're, ha we're willing to have this conversation. So they always come back round. But then you get to the whole big, big conversation around data privacy, data storage, who owns the data, what do you do with it. Um, and German elections hitting crunch point in all of those issues, aren't we? And we are not doing any work in Germany. Um, what a surprise. <laughs> um, we've had a lot of conversations with a lot of um, German, different people in different German political parties, and it came back to the same argument. That if your data is not stored in Germany, we can't do any work. What's interesting, it's not even about the data being stored in Europe. It's about being stored in Germany. Yeah. And my question, I've got and that's two... Not, that's not actually a legal thing. That's just they want to it's appeal emotional. to their voters it's and emotional. say that we're... So it's, yeah. even with GDPR, that compliance still doesn't... No, it's the doesn't... general data protection regulation of the EU. Thank you. You're completely right. It's emotional. 
it's it's not about and I can get and I understand that emotional but where do you draw the line? If you don't, if it's not about having servers in Europe, but it's about having them in Germany, why do you not have them in Berlin or in your even local region? I mean, it's a bit insane. The debate that we should actually be having is not where data is stored, mm -hmm. but having the right regulations in place that allow European citizens to know what's happening with their data abroad. I mean, like I get the historical context, yep. which is the East German Stasi yep. security services. Yep. Obviously, was that was a traumatic experience yep. for millions yep. of Germans. And obviously it takes time to heal and you yeah. should learn the lessons yeah. of the past. But actually, the Stasi was only in operation for a little over three, close to four decades. And now we've been out for nearly three yeah. decades from that system. So yeah. you, you do start to wonder when are people going to shift, shift. in their approach. Yeah. The other element on top of data storage is data aggregation. So one of the things that I spent probably 80% of my time is actually educating people on what technology allows you to do and mm -hmm. doesn't allow you to do. So one of the very powerful aspects of Nation Builder is we allow our customers to import all of the email addresses that they might have on someone, and we can tell you if that same email address has been used to create a publicly available Twitter account or Facebook mm -hmm. account. Now, and if it's public, we bring that information back in. So let's say Tony Cameron Brown at hotmail.com, that's not my email address, by the way, but um, at <laughs> hotmail.com um, is in a database of, let's say, some French um, politician. She used that same email address to create her Twitter profile and her Facebook profile. All of that data comes into your database. And it's useful because now I know that Tony has a Twitter account. She's mm -hmm. following the campaign or the specific politician. And she mentions in her Twitter bio that she's a pro-European. Yeah. Useful information to have. Or However, her sentiment changes. Or her sentiment. So yeah. she told you one thing on the doorstep in the last election campaign. And then now you she realize is. she's got a different view. Exactly. Yeah. And so two things are fascinating there. The first one is aggregating and creating profiles of people in Germany is still something that's, I think, either illegal or frowned upon. We're sort of debating that at the moment. Again, completely with the historics and attached that, and we can understand why that is the case. The second thing that's fascinating is the French data privacy authority, La CNIL, had decided in November 2016, so right at the end of the presidential campaigns, that actually it's not because data was publicly available that it was public. So it's not because it's publicly available on Twitter that you can actually use it. You can look at it, mm -hmm. but you can't do anything with it, which is absolutely fascinating. And this is another example of government sort of catching up and legislation catching up to the technology. It's like the European Parliament, where it's like, we'll put the financial declarations there in a PDF. So, yeah, you can look at it, but, but you, you can't, can't do anything with it. You can't do anything with it. And it's, and, and I, again, I get it. It's about data privacy. It's about what people are doing with this data. But what's fascinating is... They even take it further that it's not because someone follows, let's say, Emmanuel Macron on Twitter, that the campaign is actually allowed to talk to that person. Mm -hmm. But Twitter is a public, open, social platform about engaging with people. So imagine being someone and saying, sorry, you're not allowed to talk to me. I've only decided to yeah. follow you and you leave it at that. So we're in fascinating times of what you and do with this really, data. I mean, we had an article from one of our journalists, a guy called Mark Scott. He's our chief technology yeah. correspondent. And he put forward this theory that the e what the EU is really trying to do is be the world's digital policeman. Yeah. I think that they sometimes get it wrong, yeah. but I do think that they're leading the right debate. Oh, because absolutely. Because the US is really a bit behind when Completely. it comes to looking at these sort of and things. And I think every meeting of mine with a political party, but also with corporations, starts with, tell us about your data privacy regulations. Uh -huh. Tell us what you do with the data. Does the data belong to you? And it's important. These are the conversations we need to be having. We actually need these regulations in place because having driverless cars made by Google, Google without the roads, then it's completely pointless. And I think this is what shocks me time and time again is, that gap is still so visible that both government legislators and the tech companies are still not talking to each other.
And now another frontier I wanted to mention. A little bird told me that you were doing some work with, uh, in fact, a very left-wing party in Belgium, the Wallonian uh, Communist Party. Yes. Um, tell us about how that collaboration came about, and and and, and what does that say about both about them yeah. and about you guys in 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 the way that you work? Um, we don't believe that we have the right to choose who has access to tech, and that goes, I think, in the fundamental of our belief um, as a as a tech company. What it says about them, I mean, I actually love. PVDA as a political party, not because it's my political affiliation, but it's actually the only political party in Belgium that's not divided between Flemish political party and a French political party. It's the only one that's unified. So I take it back. I shouldn't call them the Walloon Communist Party. No. It's just that they're successful in, in the French-speaking part of Belgium. Yeah. For listeners who don't know, Belgium is just massively divided is probably the short way to describe it. That's geographically, language-wise, political party structures. So that's one of the reasons, that's that's sort of one of the personal reasons why I actually love this. Funnily enough, they're not the only communist party we work with. We also work with the French Communist Party. Mm -hmm. um, And we started that more or less working with both of them about a year, year and a half ago. But I think fundamentally what it says about them is they're realising that the old way or the traditional way of doing things no longer applies. And it doesn't mean that you sort of take everything that you were doing and throw it out the door and start from scratch. It just means that they're sort of looking around. I mean, if Jacob Rees-Mogg can embrace Twitter... Yeah, and, then anyone can. <laughs> all sorts of people can embrace all sorts of technology. And the last thing I would say on, on this is they've got an incredible team of people. Um, they've got some young, really innovative, really outgoing and, and forward thinking people. And I think, honestly, that's the key to success. And I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't believe that it's, you know, you, you win an election because you used Twitter or you didn't, or you paid X amount of ads on Facebook or you didn't, or you used a specific software or you didn't. You win it because you've got the right people and you've obviously got the right leader. Um, but it's the people behind the tools that matter the most. And I think where we saw this the most obviously was during the French elections um, when we worked with seven of the French presidential candidates. That's fascinating. Yeah. So. Obviously, Macron must have used it quite well. Are you at liberty to describe some of the differences? or We didn't work with Emmanuel Macron during his presidential campaign, but we worked for um, helping him get his candidates elected for the legislative campaign. Mm-hmm. So we did, uh, we rolled out Nation Builder in, I think, 400 instances, one for each of their candidates. Yeah. And obviously, that kind of obviously helped because but, he got more... But that's kind of the critical point where... Yeah. I think a lot of people were surprised that he was able to build that movement. But you can kind of do it around one person. But to then have it not collapse like a souffle for those parliamentary elections, you've got to have some backbone support. Yeah, you've got to have the backbone. And it was what was more fascinating is I think half of the candidates he put... I don't know if it's half of the candidates he put forward or half of the candidates who ended up getting elected, but half of those had never been in office before. So brand new to this whole space. So giving them the tools and equipping them with the tools and the software that they needed to be successful was a huge plus. Um, but I would say the biggest difference is so the, the people we did work with during the presidential campaign, so that was from Jean-Luc Mélenchon to Alain Juppé, Nicolas Sarkozy, um, Nathalie Kotsuskomoritse, the biggest difference was how they used the technology. Some of them used it to replace old tools to do the same thing they used to do mm-hmm. with new tools. Doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't work because ultimately you've bought a Ferrari and you're using it to just go and get your grocery shopping at the end of the street. What a waste of money. The people who were most... I mean, I mean sexy, what? but yeah, it's not, a, it's not an efficient use <laughs> of money. Say that. <laughs> not an, exactly. Um, but the ones that were the most successful were the ones that were willing to decentralise power 
give the tools to local volunteers, local teams, and be okay with that, you know, giving away that amount of power and giving them the tools to be successful and doing that whole decentralized model. The ones, the other ones that were most successful were people who actually love data. I talk a lot about, it's not about big data, it's about smart data. Mm -hmm. Who cares if you've got a million people in a CRM or in a database? If you actually don't know who these people are, you don't know how much they matter to you, then you've just got a massive Excel sheet. Excellent. Now, I'm trying to, it's not that I've run out of questions, but I think I also wanted to ask you about, like, your broader context. So... I know uh, some other people who used to work uh, for the British government yeah. have gone on to start up companies that are in this space yeah. where their kind of civic interest or public yeah. interest meets the software and also people like to make money when they yeah. start companies too. So what's your experience of this civic tech movement and where it's going and, and is London kind of the hub for it in Europe or, or how is it structured in Europe? I think we're at the we're in the early stages of it. And I think still people are trying to figure out even what the definition of civitech, civtech, what they're calling themselves. Civtech, let's Civ- go with civtech. Civtech, we're yeah. going with civtech, perfect. Um, I'll tell people Ryan said it's civtech. I don't even charge for his branding <laughs> advice, people. <laughs> it's just free. Join the podcast and you'll learn all about it. So I think we're at the early stages of it. I think there's a big movement that wants London to be the hub. Quite frankly, I mean, doesn't help the case that we've got Brexit going on now, but I have a feeling, I have a sneaky feeling that a lot is happening in Berlin and in Paris. And that brings me to a final thought, which is we do have Italian elections probably yep. in 2018, but maybe the next big venue for all of these ideas to come together is the 2019 European election. We would hope so, yeah. And we just heard in Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the yeah. Union speech that he's a supporter of this pan-EU list yeah. where voters would choose... Um, all voters, all 300 million voters yeah. would choose at least some of their representatives from yeah. a single list. Yeah. We've seen the biggest party, the European People's Party, uh, say that they really want a pan-EU yeah. campaign. So they've appointed a specific yeah. cross-border coordinator. They're yeah. going to try and have cross-border promises that yeah. mean something to everybody. What a are you going to dive into that one? Have of you got any course. exciting ideas? Or? I mean, of course I'm going to say, of course. <laughs> um, I The day, actually, jokes aside, the day I joined Nationville, maybe yeah, that's a slight exaggeration, let's say the week I joined nation bill i started calling the european parliament um and this was back in 2015 said right what are we doing for the 2019 elections i think they thought i was absolutely raving mad um and i haven't dropped that that's still happening i'm still calling well there you go the parliament the people who do comms at the parliament maybe i'm not their best friend i think that's a fair assessment um take my call here's a positive interaction i can i can hook you up with tony if you want some ideas for the european election and funnily enough that same week i joined i remember having a call with our ceo jim gilliam who said can we get a pan European voter list and I looked at him and said you're absolutely mad that's never going to happen because obviously in the US voter lists are actually a thing that's publicly available that people can use or here we go this is the lesson Google has taught us about all of our European Parliament translation documents they built Google Translate out of that. Other companies understand the single true? market. Yes. So the Google Translate product is not entirely, but significantly based on all of the translated documents because that the European Parliament Because you've one of the produces. biggest translation, translating operations. Exactly. Have. So uh, there you go. That, to the point of government-funded services there helping you go. private initiatives. Right back to it. Yeah. Um, so it's So yeah, there is no official uh, EU data list, but voter list. Voter list. But I'm sure there is a way yeah. to reverse engineer it. Yeah. I'm gunning for it. I'll be able to vote in my first European oh, elections really? in 20. 2019. Congrats. So, fingers crossed. Well, I kind of regret leaving Belgium now um, and being stuck on this island, but hey, who knows? Uh, it's only a Eurostar away. But speaking of that, I've got a Eurostar to catch. So, Tony Cohen Brown, thank you for joining us thank on EU Confidential. Me. Thank you.
And now it's time for our EU WTF moment of the week. Welcome back to the podcast, Lena Rabarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. And Alva Finn. Hi, guys. So, I don't think we can really escape this one. Boris Johnson and his mega essay, his new vision on Brexit. Um, I have many things to say about it. Uh, so before we get into the critiquing of this bombshell that Boris dropped on his boss, Theresa May, and 65 million unsuspecting Britons and a few thousand politicos here in Brussels, um, maybe could I get your thoughts on why you think Boris is employing this tactic? Yeah, when you read this 4,000-word essay, it really reads like a speech to the leavers, really reassuring them that they're going to get what they want, etc. But I think the only way that I can interpret it, particularly when you know that it wasn't passed through Downing Street, that they had no idea that he was going to do it, it seems like a bid for the leadership. Lena? You know, Ryan, I got confused. I had, I thought it should have been signed by the Prime Minister, not the Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Um, he didn't talk any, at all about anything related to, to foreign affairs. Yeah, it's obviously not his uh, not job. job. He's exactly. just freelancing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But um, why he did it, I think he just made now it almost impossible for uh, Prime Minister uh, May to match the milestones he has uh, set in this article. And I think uh, we all should be looking forward her speech uh, on, on Friday, and yet again, positioning himself as a potential future prime minister in writing, not even on TV, in writing, so we can all remember it. I'm glad we agree there. Um, maybe let's get into the critique mode then. Uh, it struck me as very Trumpian. Um, he was really saying, like, they weren't stupid, was one of the quotes. The 17.4 million people who voted to leave, they weren't stupid. There were quite a lot of manifestly untrue things in the in the essay, and that's hard for me to say because I want to be a journalist that just puts two sides of a story out there. But, you know, it's difficult with this essay. So some of the false claims, though, I think it's worth going through. Um, Johnson says, Overwhelmingly, I find that leavers and remainers are coming together. <laughs> Have you guys seen any evidence of that in the past <laughs> year? God, laughable. I can't believe he brought up the 350 million again and then started a kind of row with the head of the stats office in the UK who's yeah, saying the statistics like, this, authority is manif- said, this is manifestly wrong. untrue. And then Boris wrote him a letter then saying, you know, you willfully misrepresented what I said. Uh, so, yeah, why return to that? 350 million it really seems what he's trying to do now is say to the leavers i wasn't lying what i said to you when i i ran or helped to run that campaign all of those things are still true when we know and then it started an argument about it again that particularly that one about the statistics it's not true (laughs) lena i'm gonna throw another quote at you quote Before the referendum, we all agreed on what leaving the EU logically must entail. Leaving the customs union and the single market, leaving the European Court of Justice, taking back control of our borders, our cash and our laws. Do you remember that being agreed before the referendum, Lena? Not to my knowledge, you know. It could be like maybe during a daydream or something. Maybe he was... Like, he thought of the idea, but he didn't really explicitly say it. I mean, we didn't read it anywhere. And I think he even put himself now more under critique because they didn't provide any single vision on all the topics you, you just mentioned. 
He at one point blames the EU for creating infrastructure and housing problems in the UK and says that France just does it so much quicker. So I think he doesn't get the point that France is also a member of the EU and that the EU has nothing to do with these two issues and hasn't stopped anything from happening in But throughout the whole article, I mean, he pinpoints Germany and France as if they are like um, two different nations and not part of, of the EU. One thing that really stuck with me towards the end of the essay is he says, and of course we should pay tribute to the patriotic British men and women who got stuck into those institutions, like it was trench warfare here in Brussels. (laughs) But it's notable that even though the UK represents 16% of GDP, only 3.6% of EU officials are British. And that's actually because they just keep failing the exams. Brits don't tend to learn as many languages yeah. as are required to pass the exams. Uh, <laughs> they just don't pass them. Meow, that was catty. No, but one thing that I did did um, like about it is that he pointed out the fact that, and this this is true, uh, Britain has always gone against this idea of more Europe. And he kind of notes that that was a total failure. Except and for the single market that Margaret Thatcher proposed. Yeah, but I mean, he 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 talks about uh, the euros, the euro, etc., and that he was there and present at a lot of these summits. And the uh, basically Britain would say we say no, and then everybody would note Britain doesn't agree, and then it would happen anyway, which kind of created this two-speed Europe that we have. So I think in one way, at the very beginning, he did set out some good reasons for Brexit. And then went on to say things that are like manifestly untrue. It's not too late for another EU WTF moment, Lena. <laughs> you came up with a great suggestion, and that was uh, a story that we published on Politico this week, and it was around uh, the European Court of Human Rights. So not the European Union specifically, but Europe more generally. And uh, the court's uh, judgments, 10,000 of them, have not been enforced by its members. Uh, what, what was your reaction? What, was, what were you thinking when you made that nomination? Again, I was raised and I grew up in the Middle East, and it's it's always interesting to see how Europe reaches, how Europe all the time reaches out to us to change our legislation, to enhance the enforcement of law. How we uh, we are always uh, delayed, especially when we talk about uh, human rights. And it's really uh, thank you for this amazing story because it it just shocked me that still Europe is going in rounds and rounds with its own uh, philosophy that it's trying to let other nations learn from. But it's a real missed opportunity in the Middle East, isn't it? I mean, like, you could have set up a court that you ignored as well. I mean, that's, a, <laughs> that's a great opportunity that you just passed by. Again, what, what I'm trying to say here is that um, you cannot go and preach while you yourself have a lot of deficiencies and dysfunctionalities and you're deciding intentionally to close your eyes and keep going. Alva, you work in human rights? Yeah, I have an example uh, of how this is actually affected if you don't if you don't actually execute the judgments. So in Ireland, we had a, a very famous case called the X case, and it was on abortion. And the Irish government failed to legislate for that for over 20 years. And some people would argue that it resulted in the death of a woman because we were meant to have legislation that provided for abortion in the case of a risk to the life of a woman. And this woman actually died in Ireland as a because result of um, um, ambiguity around this. 
so the stakes sometimes can be very high. But if that didn't teach people uh, to to execute the judgments of the court, I don't know what will. It's a little bit different. I think we also have to remember that it's an international court because there's no uh, international law enforcement like that. You know, there's there's no police who will come and be like, oh, you you haven't executed this judgment yet. It's really on a kind of good faith basis, uh, which is the weakness at international law of all international law of human rights law in general. But should we not have it? Well, there is an example of good faith that we can talk about uh, succeeding. And this is our EU thumbs up moment. And I uh, wanted to nominate the fact that the EU has been working for two years with uh, large tech companies, the sort of Facebooks and Twitters of the world, to get more terror and terror related content uh, offline through voluntary means. And now EU leaders, including Theresa May, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the Prime Minister of Italy, um, they are upscaling that effort and that's being launched uh, at the United Nations General Assembly. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I have a thought. Uh, why does it take these three leaders to kind of relaunch it? Uh, I understand that two years ago we didn't have um, as many episodes of uh, of terror in, in Europe, but it's it's a little bit it's a little bit telling, I think, that you know the EU had already kind of set this up, and now it's it's getting the push that it needs because a lot of things actually need the political backing um, in order to implement properly. So now you have these three leaders being like, "Oh yes, this this thing is great." When it was already on the the books already. Well, I do hope it doesn't stop there. Educating uh, generations and working with a generation that is so much connected to the internet, it goes as well to work on the integration, to work on the educational system, to work on the communities. Yeah, it's treating a symptom rather than preventing the problem, isn't it? Exactly. Okay, moving swiftly on to our Dear Politico advice section. We've got a nice short letter here, and it reads, Dear Politico, my boss is the head of a major Brussels-based organization that speaks for an EU-wide membership. They're not based in Brussels. I take the fact that they have not moved to Brussels full-time as a snob. I worry our clients and stakeholders do too. Am I right to worry about our credibility now, or is it okay for my boss to be based somewhere else? Lena? It depends how they communicate themselves. Do they go to their clients or their members in person? Is it just via email? I I don't see why this will impact their credibility or their image. Uh, There are many organizations that are based uh, outside of Brussels, uh, yet they are registered in the Transparency Register, and uh, they do come and conduct meetings. Uh, unless that they camouflage or they pretend they are existing here and basically they are not, then of course she should be worried and she she needs to speak to her boss and put the consequences. Okay, that's a conditional okay. I'm reading through the lines and I think that there's probably, it's not just a credibility issue that you're worried about, right? It's also probably a little bit the management aspect of things. Yeah, if everyone's based here in Brussels, they have to do their job in Brussels. Why does the boss get to live the life wherever they live. But also maybe it is more difficult because you're going to have to do more phone kind of things, Skyping, maybe you're having to go to meetings that they can't go to. But I think the reality of Brussels is that it's the head of an organization which has 28, soon to be 27 member states. So lots of people are commuting in and out all the time. And that is the reality of working in a European organization. I think sometimes it can be very frustrating. But if you're having that, I don't think it really impacts on credibility as long as that person shows up when they need to be there. However, 
if the problem is that you feel like that you're not managed properly or that you're doing the job etc you really need to sit down with your boss and talk about that if that's the real reason because I think yeah well that's that's just me reading into your email but I don't know what Ryan thinks I'm a bit in two minds I think a lot of life is about showing up it's harder to show up if you're not based here but what is the point of digital technology what is the point of a union of 28 countries if you can't respect the possibilities that offers so if it was me I wouldn't be doing it I would be sticking it out in Brussels at least four days a week I mean maybe you can have a situation where you're here most of the week and you spend a long weekend back home if it is a situation where your boss's children for example are finishing a school year if it was okay for Melania Trump to delay her arrival in Washington DC maybe it's okay for your boss to do that as well but I think I think Alva's right Um, only when it impacts on your working should you be concerned about it and let the stakeholders express their concern don't don't preemptively worry about the stakeholders All right, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back with you again next week. And of course, podcasting is a team effort. So my big thanks to Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Ling and Rosie Belson. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.